Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Each of our sermons in the First Thessalonians series has had a one-word title, but today's a little different. Our topic is an uncomfortable one, but it's also one of the most important topics for the Christian to get right. So the title of today's sermon is Death, Grief, and Hope. Let's hear the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And thus is the text that we have today that Paul writes to the Thessalonians. When we look at a passage of scripture like this, we often gravitate toward the idea of meeting Christ in the air, of finding out about what is this end and what it'll be like and, and when it will happen. But if we skip to the end, we cheat ourselves out of what we really need. We could skip straight to the idea of hope, but we will talk about, and we will talk about hope, but we must first see what, it is, what is said about death and grief. Paul wants his Thessalonian sisters and brothers to grasp the idea of death and grief and hope, all three together. And he wants the church, you and me, to understand that Christ, the Christian needs to approach death, grief, and hope differently from the rest of the world. And this is admittedly not easy. And it takes time. It takes a lifetime. This is one of the great marks that sets the Christian apart from a non-believer. It is all too easy for the Christian to react to death, grief, and hope in the same way a non-Christian would. But we are to be different because we follow Jesus who has conquered death, thereby rewriting grief and securing Christian true hope. We're going to start by talking about death. I cannot think of too many other words that are as uncomfortable than the word death. Death should make us uncomfortable. It reminds us of our limitations, that we are merely created creatures instead of being creators or the creator ourself. Death, as painful and as, sorrow, as sorrowful as it is, serves as a reminder that each one of us must face our own sin. If you're like me, or any other American, or really like other people, the discomfort of death causes you not to want to think about it. I understand this. This reaction is normal. Death and grief are just as intense for the Christian as they are for the non-believer. But we do ourselves no favors by refusing to think about death, of the, inevi uh, of the inevitable deaths that we will have to face someday, of our own death and of those that we love. If the coronavirus has shown us anything about modern American culture, it has exposed how unequipped our culture is at facing death. The more unequipped we are, the more dramatic our response and the more unhealthy our response will be. 
being unequipped to face death is the result of three attitudes that our culture holds towards death. And these attitudes are failure, fear, and avoidance. Death in our culture is seen as the ultimate failure. This is especially true for the medical worker, whose goal is to bring healing and wellness to a person. So many people define their success by their accomplishments and the control they have over their destiny. When this is the case, death is seen as a failure because death is the moment when we lose control of our accomplishments and our destiny. Perhaps we need to face that death is un- inevitable for all of us. It is necessary for all of us. It is, in fact, one of the most important moments of your life. In the moment of death, we are released from mortality, imagine that, into eternity. And the Christian is released from the final grasp of the sin nature into the holiness of God. The second attitude that our culture has towards death is that death is feared. We always fear the unknown, and many of us fear something we have never done before. We fear what we cannot control, and death fits the bill for all of these. And the third quality the American culture has towards death, or attitude they have towards death, is this. And that when you take the uh, failure that we see in death, when you take the fear that we have of death, you add it up and you get to this ultimate uh, result, which is that we tend to avoid death. We try not to think about it. We try not to think about that someday grandma and grandpa or mom and dad will not be around. Someday is an idea that lots of us avoid. You know, when it comes to funerals, I understand the desire to use the term celebration of life. And we should celebrate life. But I wonder if sometimes we say, I want to have a celebration of life, because even at a funeral, we want to avoid thinking about death. I'm not saying you need to see death as a friend or be comfortable with it, but for the Christian, death is not a failure. For the Christian, death should hold no fear. What is death in the Word of God? Well, it's several things. We can only talk a little bit about it today. Death is the result of our sin. Genesis 3.19, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree in the the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God pronounces judgment upon them, and death is part of that judgment. It's a reminder of of our sin. In Genesis 3.19, we read, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, gives us some interesting ideas about death. We read these words, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but, of the, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, I, when I read this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I really think of you know, the American culture. We try to avoid thinking about death at all costs. And this passage isn't tell us to, telling us to avoid parties or avoid smiling or having a good time or enjoying life. But I believe it's a warning 
for us to not hide from death. We are healthier and more whole when we are willing to face and think about death head on. And the final scripture I'd read about death, the very important one, is from Romans 6.23. It says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, we're told that death makes us face our sin. It's a reminder that we, we need help. But Romans 6.23 also tells us that we, where that help comes from. It comes from Jesus Christ. Today, if you are not a Christian, I urge you to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior so that you can be released from your sin into eternal life. Now, perhaps the idea of death is uncomfortable. So, uh, let us take a moment here and uh, here's a, f- maybe hopefully you'll find a funny story. There's a story of a bank in Binghamton, New York, and they had some flowers sent to a competitor who had recently opened up a new building. But there was a mix-up at the flower shop, and the card that was sent with the arrangement read like this. So the bank got this, uh, this, this competitor got the arrangement of flowers, and the card in the flowers read like this, with our deepest sympathy. Uh-oh, they sent it to the wrong place. The florist was greatly embarrassed and apologized, but he was even more embarrassed when he realized that the card intended from the bank to their competitor ended up at a funeral home of a deceased person for a funeral there, and, and the card read, Congratulations on your new location. Oh, I don't know that I'd want to try to explain that one. It's funny, the things that we can do, the mix-ups that can happen. But you know, there's more truth in that story than we realize as a Christian. For the Christian, death is a change of location. Around the year 125 AD, a Greek by the name of Aristides wrote to one of his friends trying to explain the extraordinary success of a new religion called Christianity. In his letter, he said this, If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God, and they accompany his body with songs and thanksgiving, as if he were just setting out from one place to another nearby. And that is the view of the Christian when a fellow brother or sister in Christ passes away. They're changing locations. They're they're nearby. They're not far away. Now, for another strange story. Sarah Winchester's husband had acquired a fortune by manufacturing and selling rifles, you know, Winchester. After he died in 1918, yes, of influenza, she moved to San Jose, California. Because of her grief and her long interest in spiritism, Sarah sought out a medium to contact her dead husband, and the medium told her, as long as you keep building your home, you will never face death. And Sarah believed the medium. So she bought an unfinished 17-room mansion and started to expand it. The project continued until she died at age 85. It cost $5 million at a time when the workmen were paid 50 cents a day. The mansion, unfinished, had 150 rooms, 13 bathrooms, 2,000 doors, 47 fireplaces, and 10,000 windows, and Mrs. Winchester left enough materials so that they could have continued building for another 80 years. Today, that house stands as as little more than a tourist attraction. It's a silent witness to the dread of death 
that holds millions of people in bondage. We avoid it. We try to run away from it, and we don't know how to handle our grief. And with this in mind, I want to turn to that second idea that Paul writes about, grief. We need to grieve, and we need healthy grief in our lives. Grief is produced by death and loss. Just as the Christian perception of death sets us apart from the non-believer, grief, grief as a response to death and loss should be different from the non-believer. Kenneth Mitchell and Herbert Anderson describe grief this way, loss is what happens to people, grief is what they do about it. Grief can also be defined this way, wanting death or destruction to be undone, while at the same time knowing that it cannot be undone. Grief is a complicated emotion, and like death, we are better able to face grief when we have done some work to wrestle with it, to think about it, to face it before it is thrust upon us. Grieving is natural. Even Jesus, at the news of the death of Lazarus, grieved. John 11.35 gives us one of the shortest verses of the Bible, and yet this short verse tells us it's healthy to grieve as it reads, Jesus wept. If it's appropriate and good and healthy for Jesus to weep and grieve, then it is good for you and me. I took a few minutes earlier this week and scribbled down just, I took some time, and whatever words came to my mind about grief that I could associate with grief, I just wrote them down. And as I was looking at these words, I was thinking, you know, some of these cause grief. And some of these words, these descriptions, intensify grief. And some of these make grief, grief worse if you wait till it's too late to face them. So here's some of these words, and I'll add a couple of thoughts with them. One word we might associate with grief, obviously, is loss, because we lost what we grieve. Because of the loss, I should say, we grieve. Often a person grieving will feel as though they are missing a piece of themselves. Don't hide from this. I know it's uncomfortable, but the more you're willing to face that a piece of you is missing, the more that you'll be able to heal. Finality is another word. Death feels so final, and on this side of heaven, it is. But that finality can be overwhelming and a heavy burden. We're often bothered about the fact that death seems like it cannot be undone. Regret is another word. Sometimes when we lose a person close to us, there's regret over things that were said or conflicts that were unresolved. This is an area that as much as you can, I want to urge you today to work on before the finality of death comes. If there's someone in your family you need to get forgiveness from, if there's someone in your family you need to apologize to, don't wait. Because when death comes, it is too late. It cannot be done in the same way after death. Relief is another word used to describe grief. If someone you love has been suffering, then their passing can be a relief. Or if caring for a loved one has been a burden after they have passed, you might feel relief and you might feel guilty because you feel relief. But realize it's okay to feel relief. It is part of the grieving process. And I said relief and I mentioned guilt there, but guilt is often a part of grief. Sometimes we feel bad for feeling relief or, or there's some sort of unresolved regret. I, you might ask yourself, I wonder if I could have done more. Maybe I didn't say the right things. Maybe, what if I had done this differently? Do not let guilt capture you in your grief. It can freeze you into your grief and imprison you. Unexpected is another word. 
When a loss is unexpected, the grief can be crushing. We can find ourselves stunned. Here's a few more words that come with grief. There's suffering, there's pain, there's sorrow, there's also joy and celebration and honor. It takes time. There's healing. There's relearning in the grief process. There's new life in the process of grief. And there is hope. At this point, I realize that some of you are feeling a heavy weight. You might even be frustrated that I have brought up such a painful topic today. I'm sorry. I have not intended to hurt any of you. But as I read the Bible and our text today with Paul calling the Thessalonians to face death and grief, I am reminded that Christian grief grief is supposed to be different. We need to wrestle with it. I'm not so foolish to say that that Christian grief hurts less or that it's less tragic or that it heals faster, that uh, death and and loss, they are extremely difficult. But the Christian has a unique set of tools, allies, and promises for facing death and grief. You do know that you can only grieve what you have loved. That is a good thing to be able to say, I have loved and loved with real love. And in this sense, grief may be even harder for the Christian. If we are letting the Holy Spirit do a transformative work in us, then we are learning to love each day truer and truer. And that also means that our potential for grief is stronger. But I find it to be comfort. Something so terrible only can happen because we have done something so wonderful. Love. One of the ways we try to deal with grief, and I want to warn you against this, is to disown it. Ignore it. Pretend it's not there. But to disown grief is to lie that we have loved someone. We've loved, and so we hurt. It's okay to hurt. When we try to disown it, we only make the hurting worse. We don't make it better. One of the tools, or one of the allies that we have, in dealing with grief is we have the church with us. The church should not let us hide from death. In preparing for this message, I I read several articles on grief, many of which focused on funerals, and a theme arose from those articles, and they all kind of said one of the benefits of belonging to a church body is that we must face death more than a non-churchgoer would. When we're part of a church body, we're part of an expanded family, and in that expanded family, loss happens. The church gives us regularly, and we might not call it a gift, but the church gives us the gift of death. People we love pass away. Routinely, it is found that churchgoers face death and grief in a healthier way than those who stay away from the church. Yes, it's because we have Christ. But something happens when we prepare funeral dinners, when we share tea together, when we spend time and and laugh and share memories and, and all the things we do when someone we love leaves us. And so we grow. Do not forget your ally in the church when it comes to dealing with grief, both in the moment you feel grief, but also by living together and grieving together, we prepare ourselves for when grief comes. One of the greatest tools we have is hope. But before I turn to the topic of hope, I want to challenge you. If you avoid conversations about death with your family members, find ways to start having them. 
If you're pretending that someone you love will be with you forever, enjoy them, but do not hide from death. Be willing to wrestle with grief. Find healthy ways to face grief. And while you can, mend relationships. Ask for forgiveness. Tell someone you love them so that one day grief will not be exasperated by guilt because you didn't get the forgiveness you need or you regret something you did. But the last part of this passage talks about death is coming for those, those who fall asleep, right? And that we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. And that's the third part. The Christian has hope. I talk about hope a lot, and, and so many times this world talks about hope like, I, I wish this would happen. I just hope that the weather will be good next week. But the hope of the Christian isn't a wish. It is trust in the promise of God. Why should we hope when we react to death? Because death is not an end, but a beginning. Ever hear, hear the phrase, this world is not my home? And so we trust the promise of God. Faith is at the core of hope. And hope is really about trust. And trust must happen if we're going to face hardship. For the Christian, we have the hope of the resurrection. But when it comes to death, grief, and hope, everything will often feel the same. It'll look the same right now, but it isn't the same. And that's the test for us. Do we really believe in hope? Do we believe in the promises of God? That's the trial that we're in right now. G.K. Chesterton says this, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it's no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is a mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. So right now we are in a time when hope is hard because we don't see that things are different when it comes to death and grief. But hope means that we trust in the promises of God. Romans 14, 7-8 says this, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And we need to trust that we are the Lord's. I love how that passage ends, that we are the Lord's possession. Do you know that? Do you trust that? When we feel despair, we can have hope because we are God's possession. He has destined for us far more than this blue and green globe has to offer. For the Christian, death releases us from this broken world, from pain and suffering, and yes, it even releases us from grief, and we get to step into eternity. That is why it is a joy and a celebration when we read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and 8, 3 through 18, when we read about meeting Jesus in the air, that there'll be the cry of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and we'll meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. It's a wonderful triumph and celebration because we know things are different. There is death, there is grief, and yet there is hope. I look forward to the day when 1 Corinthians 15, 51-55 come true. And Paul writes these words, 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be, ra will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, body, imperishable and this mortal body must be must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Well, right now, death does still sting. Grief still feels like a sea that we get thrown into, and the waves swarm over us. But the promise is, and what we hope for, is that it will not always be this way. I want to close our time with the words of John Owen. When John Owen, Owen the great Puritan, was on his deathbed, his secretary wrote for him, in his name, a letter to a friend with these words, I am still in the land of the living. Stop, said Owen. Change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, and I hope soon to be in the land of the living. That is the Christian hope. That changes how we face death and grief. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, today we have a heavy topic and it's been laid upon our hearts and minds, death, grieving, and hope. Help your church to face death and grief in a dramatically different way from the rest of the world. The way we face death points to the life in Christ. And Lord, I pray for the person here today who is grieving. Perhaps even this sermon has brought pain to their hearts because they're facing some grief they've been hiding from. Minister to them, bring peace to them, and bring healing that is beyond understanding to them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.